Remain seated, but let's give our attention uh, to God's inerrant word as we read from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And as the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. The dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Lord, we thank you for uh, your word and the depth of it. Lord, we often get, as uh, rational creatures in a rational age, we often get caught up uh, in the circumstances and details and sometimes lose sight of what the passages are teaching us. So we pray that you would help uh, us to see the deep analysis of the human heart that's occurring here so that we might know, uh, so we might know at least a little bit the depths of the sickness of our hearts so that we might cling all the more tightly to Jesus who has saved us, who has taken our sin and given us his righteousness in the best deal of all time. Uh, Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to see the beauty of Christ. So we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey. As you promised to beautify us, your afflicted ones, in Jesus' name, amen. So I had heard uh, a story, or I would heard that the Golden Gate Bridge is constantly being painted which I thought was fascinating. And I always thought that what they meant was that the Golden Gate Bridge was, you know, they started painting it, and by the time they got done on the other side, it started, it needed paint again. But it's actually worse than that. (laughs) Uh, It's not just that the paint starts to fade at the other end, they're waging a constant war against corruption and rust on the bridge. And so the maintenance crews are constantly searching for where the corruption is worse, where the rust is the worse, uh, and painting those parts, and they're do, they do everything they can just to try to keep up. There's no beautifying the bridge more than it actually already is. It's just a mad race to keep it uh, from disintegrating. And I think that's fascinating uh, because it's such a great analogy for life, isn't it? I mean, have you ever wondered why everything is just so dang hard? Why nothing is ever done? I mean, oh. I tried to like, I'm trying to like have a nice yard, a nice landscape, you know, but you like take, it's like everything else in life. You mow the lawn, you, and then the lawn dies, and then you try to seed it, and then the, you know, and then the gophers come, and then, you know, it's just like one, you just, just life is like literally three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, 2.9 steps back, and that's just how it is, man. Everything is hard. And nothing is ever really done. We're just kind of in a battle of maintenance to keep things afloat. Do you not feel this way? (laughs) I do. Everything is continually falling apart over time. That's scientifically true. This principle of entropy says that matter, left on its own, will move towards uh, dissolution towards decay, towards repair, but it's really true of everything. Physical things like bridges, it's true of emotional things like relationships, it's true of spiritual things like faith. Uh, uh, left alone, left on its own, we will slowly drift into disorder and decay like a sad banana that's been left and forgotten in the bottom of the food bowl. <laughs> so why? Why is it? I mean, we're so used to it you know, we're like, that's so normal to us, but is it really, why, it, it's not normal. Why are things like that? And the reason is right here in this text. 
Why is this such a pivotal moment in history? It's because this is where all of that started in the fall, in the separation between mankind and God that began the long, slow process of decay and dissolution where everything's slowly drifting away and falling apart. Uh, and the only thing that is able to put us back together is Jesus. And that's what we're going to look, about, look at today and talk about, that whenever we try to be like God, everything falls apart, and only Jesus can put us back together. So let's look at that one little part at a time. Whenever we try to be like God. I think we evangelicals, 20th century, 21st century evangelicals, Whenever we look at this text, 99% of the time we're focused on the circumstances, the science, the history. These are real people, these are real events, this is a real place, uh, and we're trying to like figure out like how to make that make sense or give like rational and scientific and historical reasons why we believe that, and that's true. However, the ancient, if ancient people reading this text, that wouldn't have been the primary thing. The history would have been just assumed. They wouldn't have tried to like really get behind it. What they were looking at, what they would look at was not so much the historical aspect of the text, but what we would call the supra-historical or what is this passage teaching us? Why did God put this here? Why did God superintend the preservation of it to teach us important things about who we are, our relationship with God, what our solution is, what our problem is, the big questions in life, and what is it that that teaches us. And so let's, let's just for a minute, just for a minute, let's put aside the historical arguments and everything that we're so good at and look at something else. Let's look at the trajectory of mankind's very first sin and see if we don't learn something, okay? First, I want, you, I want to talk about the snake. I've had... Uh, I don't know how many conversations of people who were like, talking snake, nah, we're done. They don't even want to hear anything. They, hear, they see the talking snake, they don't want to hear anything else, right? Uh, and I, I, I think that's a good translation. The good translation is serpent. The word is nachash in Hebrew. But Hebrew is a kind of fluid language. Uh, and, that, and that very same word, if, it is a, uh, if it's a noun... It's a serpent, which in the ancient world were thought about as throne guardians. You would see images of serpents guarding the thrones of kings. And so in the context of the garden, as being God's holy palace, temple, throne room, and Adam being the high priest over that, like we talked about earlier, uh, the serpent would be an apt, apt way to think about that as a throne room guardian. But if you make it a verb, it has a different meaning. It means, it's a, it means a diviner, someone who relays divine information or an enchanter. Uh, and if you make it an adjective, uh, it, means, it, means, it comes from, the root, comes from uh, a root that means bronze or highly polished, burnished bronze. And so all, all over the Bible, it's used to portray things that are shining and bright and glowing. It's even, it's used of spiritual beings and they're the way angels glow. So, is it a snake? Could God use a physical animal, a snake, to deliver or to, to, to be the tempter? Uh, 
I think that we, the way to look at it is if we were an ancient people, we would be thinking fluidly in Hebrew with all of those things. And the, real, the meaning behind the text is this is a, not just a snake. It's more than a snake. It is one of the divine beings that we learned about earlier who is one of the shining ones, one of the Elohim, one of the counsel of God who has come to deceive and betray mankind. One, one commentator says that this would have, this animal would have been seen, I love this, as a chaos monster from the realm of the uncreated. There's an anime movie for you right there. <laughs> and so then what is the, the Nahash, the serpent, the diviner, the enchanter, the shining one has come to Eve to cast shade on God and to tempt them and to destroy what God loves. Uh, and what does he do? The real temptation in this, it's not the fruit. The real temptation is that if she eats the fruit, she will be like God. Uh, she will be able to do what only God is able to do. Uh, and then that matches some internal discontent that's already pre-existing in her heart. You can see it when she's like, we can't even touch it. God didn't say that. She made that up. Where'd that come from? Uh, and then that internal, the, the temptation meeting, the external temptation meeting with the in, in, internal discontent created questions. Questions about the clarity of God's word. Questions about the truth of God's word. Questions about the relevance of God's word. Uh, questions about the character of God. And then she reevaluated everything by her own standards, by human standards. The tree looks good. Uh, the tree provided food. It served a good purpose. The tree was good for wisdom. It was going to teach me things. Uh, and so Eve said to herself, man, if it feels so right, how could this be wrong? <laughs> and the final stage of that trajectory is there was a realignment of trust. She took her trust off of God and his wisdom and his power and his word and reassigned trust to herself, her own power, her own wisdom, her own word. And she took and she ate. Why? Because God is bad and my desires are good. And she took on to herself what only God is really capable of doing, being, she tried to be like God. That's the trajectory. Now, did that actually happen? Yeah, that totally happened, right? But what I want to do is play a little game, like a carnival card game, like pick a card, any card, like a three-card Monty kind of thing, and, and just say, let's play a game where you pick a sin. Pick any sin. Pick your, most, pick your favorite sin. Pick the one that bothers you the most. Pick the one that you're most susceptible to. Pick the one that's most infecting the church. Pick the one that's most infecting society, and what you see is the exact same trajectory happens in every one of those. There's always the outside temptation, the nachash working to tempt and to confuse and to destroy, and it's met with an internal discontent uh, that, is, that, is, that is mad because we can't do what we want. God is killing the fun in life and not allowing me to do what would really make me fulfilled. 
And then it leads to questions about, well, maybe God's word isn't actually clear on this. Maybe God's word isn't actually truthful. Maybe this God's word doesn't really have any relevance to my particular situation. And then it leads to questions of maybe God himself isn't good. Maybe God is just holding out on us. Maybe we don't need God at all. Maybe God isn't even there. And we can use our reason and our wisdom to figure this out. Uh, because it feels so right. How could it possibly be wrong? And then there's a realignment of trust, from trusting God's word to trusting ourselves. It's like, the more I read this passage, the more, and the more I like think about it along those lines, the more astonished I am how this ancient text can give a deeper, more vibrant, fuller, better uh, analysis or diagnosis of the human heart. Every sin is like this. And so while I think that it's good for us to be arguing for and to be defending the historicity of the garden and the historical reality of Adam and Eve and the historic reality of the fall, if that's all we do and we lose sight of this super historical, the theological meaning that's impregnated in this, think about it. If no one ever hears this, no one ever hears their sin dissected in that profound way, that's what it's for, right? I mean, there's just... Paul says, he's talking about like tongues in, in Corinthians, but he's, you know, he says, I'd rather speak a word, I'd rather prophesy or speak a word of intelligence. Why? Because if someone comes in and you're speaking in tongues, you think, they'll think you're insane. But if you come in and you speak a profound prophetic word, meaning God's word, they'll be cut to the heart and they'll say God is truly among them. So we need balance here. I'm not saying ditch the historical arguments. I'm not saying they're not true. Hear me. <laughs> But I'm saying it's tragic when we lose the super historical meeting because this is the stuff that cuts people to the heart. This is the stuff that sends people home with a burr under their saddle thinking, gosh, that's exactly, that was exactly my process of reasoning. That's exactly why I'm justifying this. Uh, and as tragic as that is, the real tragedy here is that what is the outcome, the ultimate outcome of this sin of our original parents was death. Not immediate physical death, something far worse, immediate spiritual death. An immediate spiritual death which then started the long, slow process of decay and disintegration, uh, bringing death to everything worthwhile in this life and in the next. Uh, why? Because we are all we are all held guilty. We are, God considers everyone guilty for what Adam did. I, we are not born into sin because of some corruption that's handed down generation to generation like genetics. We're born into sin because Adam was our champion. Adam was the first man who, who, was going to act, who acted for all of us when he fell when we were born, God counts us guilty with the guilt of Adam's first sin. 
And being born into that guilt is what makes us born into corruption. And that corruption then produces every other type of sin as we try to plug that hole with everything other than God. And so what does that corruption look like? Second part, what does the corruption look like in the aftermath? The corruption looks like everything falls apart. Uh, We spent a whole day talking about the day of the Lord, the Sabbath rest, and what it meant. That the Sabbath rest is pictured in Genesis as God sitting on his throne and ruling over all heaven and all earth. That was great until the fall, because whenever heaven now intersects or penetrates into time and space, with it comes the ethics of heaven, the morals of heaven, the perfect morals of heaven, and with that, the necessary judgment that God must judge. Uh, why, and so why did, I go in, why did I take a whole day to talk about that, to talk about what the day of the Lord was? Because this is, in this passage, the very first incident of the day of the Lord. Where is it? Look where it says, uh, what does it say? In, when God comes to find them, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and our translations say in the cool of the day. That's because the word is ruach, which means either wind or spirit. Uh, it's the same word that in the beginning said the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, and so translating committees have said it means that God has come in the wind of the day. That doesn't make any sense. So it must have been uh, the wind was blowing when God came. And so it was the cool or the afternoon of the day. However, if we just take it for spirit, then it says something very, very direct. God came in the spirit of the day. What day? The Sabbath day, the day of the Lord. God intruding into time and space for the very first time in judgment over Adam and Eve. And what happened? The immediate effect of the fall is all relationships are broken. The relationship with God is severed. Adam is, for the first time ever, is hiding from God. Uh, And so, you know, it's not like God doesn't know what Adam did. He says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree, of the fruit? He's not asking a question. It's like when I go to my dog chopper and I have my 70 pieces of my earbuds in a, you know, in a pile in my hand and I say to chopper, chopper, did you eat my earbuds? (laughs) He puts his tail between his legs and walks out of the room. And so did Adam. And so there's broken relationship with God. They're hiding in fear. And there's broken relationships with each other. Blame shifting. It's the woman's fault. No, God, it's your fault for giving me the woman, Eve. No, it's the serpent's fault. Everybody blaming everybody else. Uh, And that corruption, that decay, that slow drift into breakup is already, it's happening right away. Why? Immediate spiritual death. And so God, in the spirit of the day of judgment, issues out curse sanctions in three parts. First, he curses the serpent, the Nahash. 
the divine throne guardian, the enchanter, the shining one, and basically the curse is that he will go from the highest order of being to the lowest. He will go from the divine counsel of God among the Elohim and the shining ones to being lower than the lowest creeping thing on earth. And not only that, there will be divine retributive justice upon him. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity. That my friend John Wagner defines that as enemyness. <laughs> I will put enmity. There will be a war, constant war and enemies between you and the woman, between your offspring, all that believe in the false religion uh, that you are propagating, and her offspring, all those who are part of God's people. A separation of people, right? And then, all of a sudden, it switches to a singular pronoun. It switches from offspring, all people, to a single offspring. And it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which right here in Genesis 3 is the very first mention of Jesus and the cross and the atonement. Seed form, inner concentric ring on the tree. And as the Old Testament goes on and we go into the New Testament, rings are added, information is added, more detail, more clarity is added until we see Jesus come on the scene in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Uh, and then, second, curse on the woman. There will, be, there will be multiplication of pain in childbearing. Uh, that even the most wonderful things will be marred by pain and suffering. Uh, then there will be discord between men and women. It says that your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We know from Genesis 4, 17, that same language is used as sin crouching to overtake Cain. And so it's a, it's a just depiction of how that relationship with God has been broken, and now the relationships between people have been broken, uh, and pride and anger and humility begin to set in, and blame shifting and resentment uh, and the man and the woman will leave the roles that God has given them as protector and provider and leader and strong helper and fight for power. Which, uh, but I want to point out, this, this hit me like a brick when I read it this year. This is her curse. This isn't a, this isn't a general curse for everyone. This is the woman's curse. It means that there's going to be a war and it will not go well for her. Uh, with all, it will not go well for her in a power battle with men. She's going to get the low, she's going to get, not going to get the upper hand in that war. And we see that playing out over the millennia. Uh, with all the talk and all the idle talk that we have about the, the bane of the church being the unsubmissive women, uh, the reality, the brutal reality is that one in four relationships in the church are abusive. One in four. This is her curse. And we need to be aware of that. And finally, the curse on the man is the curse on the earth. 
as basically what happens from this point forward is mankind, nothing is easy again. Uh, everything is frustrated. Nothing can ever be done. Everything becomes hard. And so from this point forward, mankind enters this millennia-long struggle to try to regain the promise of that Sabbath rest without God, without heaven, on our own, and it's frustrated over and over and over again. That's the curse. That's why you have to paint the Golden Gate Bridge every day. That's why the banana rots in the bottom of your fruit bowl. That's why it's hard to have a loving and caring relationship with your spouse. Uh, everything is crumbling. One godless empire crumbles as another takes its place and crumbles as another takes its place and crumbles. No matter how successful you are, death is the great equalizer. And everything including you is slowly drifting into dissolution and decay, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And we see at the end that God closes the way to the tree of life as an act of mercy so that we wouldn't rush the garden, eat the tree of the fruit of life, live forever in a state of corruption and sin and pain and suffering. Uh, and so that no matter how hard we try, there is no way back to the tree of life except by the way that God provides. And what is that? That's the last part. The way that God provides is simple. Jesus puts us back together. What is God's way? God, he, he rolls right here in Genesis 3, God rolls out uh, the gospel. There's, in Luke chapter 24, this great story after the crucifixion, uh, right after the resurrection, but nobody knows it yet. There's these disciples, and they're walking home to their, their city in Demaeus, and they're just despairing because they thought Jesus was the Messiah, and now he's dead. So Jesus joins them on the road, they don't know it's him. And he's cheerful. He's whistling as they're walking along. And he's there. And he's asked them, like, why you, why long face, pilgrim? <laughs> and they tell him, oh, you know, we thought Jesus was the Messiah, but he's just, or they said, or they go, what, have, have, have you, are you the only one that has not heard about the things which have happened this day? And he's like, what things? <laughs> I wish I could have been there just to hear him say that one line. What things? <laughs> And they tell him, and he says, you who are slow to believe. And then he started from Moses, which means Genesis, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, and showed them how everything in the Bible was talking about him. And so where did he start? He started right here. He started right here. He started at Genesis 3.15, saying, hey, that whole crush the head, bruise the heel, that's what you just saw. On the cross, I won the victory over Satan and death. I killed, I crushed the head of the Nachash, of the, the, the pseudo-shining one, of the enchanter that has been plaguing mankind. Uh, and how do we know that? Look, look, look what happens in this passage. 
There, Adam gives the strangest response. Think about it. God lays out all the, the all those curse sanctions that I just all the, all those curse sanctions I just said against the snake, against the woman, against the man. It's just like bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, and then you're gonna die. <laughs> Your dust you will turn death. And then right the next verse, Adam's response is what? He names his wife. He goes, and so Adam called his wife, the woman, Isha, he called her Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all the living life. How did we get there? How do we go from like God proclaiming death over all creation to all of a sudden Adam is saying, Eve, the mother of all life. Why? Because Adam believed the promise that God said in Genesis 3.15. He understood it. He understood that he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. It meant that one of their descendants would come and undo everything that they had just done. The first Adam failed. There would be a new Adam who would come and he would crush the serpent and he would be injured in the process as we know, no, crucified. And so theologians, we, we call this Adam's amen. It's Adam's amen to the promise. God said, I'm sending a deliverer. Trust in that. And Adam said, my wife's name is now Eve because she will be the mother of all living. What does that mean? It means he believed it. He trusted God. Adam was saved in that moment by believing in the promise. And that's how it is, and that's how it's always been. God gives the gospel message, even if it's a very murky form back then, and says, trust in this. Adam trusted in it. His, his, uh, and his, his trust, his belief in that was counted by God as righteousness. Same thing with Abraham. He said to Abraham, again, talking about a seed, uh, I will multi, I'll make your name great, I'll make you a father amongst many nations, and through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That's Jesus. Goes all the way down to David. David in the covenant that God makes with David, he says that through one of your seed, a king of Israel will, 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 will be the promised Messiah that saves everyone. David believes in that promise. We hear what Jesus has done for us. He was crucified for us and for our sin. We believe in that. We believe in the promise that God will give us eternal life, and we're saved. Always been. Always will be. We're saved by faith in the promise. And then, just to make sure everybody understands what's going on, God seals the deal and he creates a whole new covenant for Adam and for Eve and for all of their descendants. Listen to this. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, for Adam and his wife, garments of skins, and he clothed them. Where do you get the skins? It was the very first sacrificial, the first substitutionary sacrifice. We're not even sure. They, probably, they may, may not have ever seen death before. And God slaughtered two animals right in front of them in all the violence and all the blood and all the horror of that to impress upon their minds one simple thing, that you will be saved by the death of another. 
And then what does he do? He takes the skins of the animal, he takes their fig leaf, loincloths, work, uh, works of their own hands, takes them away from them, and he clothes them, teaching them that we would be clothed in the righteousness of that sacrificial victim. Right, right here. We talk about the active... We, Jesus did two things for us, not just one thing. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for all of our sin. He was judged for us. We never have to face judgment again. But there was also the requirement that we be righteous. And so Jesus also was perfectly righteous. He never sinned. He perfectly kept the law. And when we believe in Jesus, what it means is that we trade. We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. The theme of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ is one of the most beautiful like themes that you can trace from right here all the way through the Bible. That we, God gives us the perfection and beauty uh, and sinless, blameless splendor of Jesus and we put it on like a cloak over us and that's what God sees when he sees us. Why is this important? Listen, we talk about this all the time, right? We always we say this all the time. Jesus died the death that we, should, we couldn't, you know, we, Jesus lived the life we could never live. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Jesus gives us his righteousness. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from isolated verses here and there. None of this stuff comes from these isolated verses here and there that we've been talking about. Where does it come from? It starts right here in these picture forms that God presents, and it is, becomes the very fabric of the Bible, from the Old Testament through the New Testament. This theme is continually built on and added to uh, and organically grows. It is this understanding these themes is the defense against critical biblical scholarship that wants to tell us that the Old Testament is like this bad cut and paste patchwork of old myths. That 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 only flies if you ignore these major themes that unfold as the Bible goes on, of the atonement. Someone will die for us in our place, will be given his righteousness, developed all the way through the text. It's the very fabric of the Bible. And why is that good? Because it's not, it's not a guess. It's just God has like gone all out to show us this simple, simple thing that only Jesus has the power to put us back together. Only Jesus has the power to put us back together. And he is powerful enough to put anyone back together. And all it requires is that you trust him instead of yourself. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word and what you've done for us in Jesus. Uh, in our Lord, in our quest to understand the deepest details of your word, it, we can get lost in the trees. So I pray you would help us right now just step back and see the forest. Jesus has put us back together. Jesus has died for us, given us his righteousness. And we right now stand in, in, before you with no fear, receiving your full love and blessing as your adopted sons and daughters because of what Christ has done. We thank you for that. Uh, and we pray that you would help us uh, to be light to the world and to
transmit this message of the gospel to everyone that you might put in front of us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.